This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with the likes of so many of my personal heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from witchcraft, paganism, mythology, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for ritual use. The lab has just released their annual Halloween perfume collection, which is a limited edition series that includes a line inspired by depictions of witches and sorcery in classical art Ooh, right up my alley. I've been a fan for years, and you will be too. So check them out at their official online shop at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Snowy Owl Tea. And I am so lucky that it is because they spoil me with their scrumptious tea blends and always send me what's new. Snowy Owl Tea's latest concoctions include Midnight Moon, which is an Earl Grey tea blend with lavender and vanilla, and my new addiction called Ginger Snapped, which is a ginger tea with oats and vanilla, and it is just outrageously delicious. Snowy Owl Teas are unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. They are created with your health and comfort in mind using 100% biodegradable tea bags and some of the most beautiful packaging I've ever seen. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off orders using code WITCH. So go ahead and order some super delicious tea today from www.snowyowltea.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Lovely ones, because of the nature of podcasting, every now and again I find myself recording just before something huge is happening in the world, knowing that the episode will air just after that thing, and so I can't really comment on its outcome. And today, that huge thing that I'm recording just before is the U.S. midterm elections, 
which you hopefully know are a really huge deal in determining the future of this country and of American democracy in general. Now, knowing how our last few elections have gone, there's a very solid chance that by the time this episode drops, we still won't have the entire picture of all of the election results, though we shall see. And regardless, it is clear that we are in tumultuous times and that there is a faction of people a minority of people who want the white, Christian, straight, cisgender, patriarchal point of view to dominate everything and everyone else. And that includes the economy, because capitalism is very much tied into these dominant structures. And so those of us who hold other points of view and identities whether we are pagan, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, queer, trans, black, brown, and certainly if we are women or anyone who can get pregnant, our safety and our freedom is under threat. And it is very easy to give over to fear, to be despondent, or to want to just ignore what is happening altogether. But we are witches, and witches have always been aligned with the margins, with the oppressed, with the underdogs. And witches are resourceful and crafty and adept at making magic and bringing about change with whatever tools we have to hand. But as I'm thinking about the future and figuring out the ways that I can use my magic and my resources to help protect the most vulnerable among us, including the planet itself, I actually find myself looking more often to the past, not only to help me recognize these age-old patterns of fascism and religious oppression and racism and misogyny, but also to draw strength and inspiration from those who fought against those very things and who resisted that oppression, whether overtly or covertly, and who invented alternative models of power, of creativity, and of equality. I recently had the honor of writing the foreword to the Wiser Classics edition of Gerald Gardner's 1959 book, The Meaning of Witchcraft. And I will be the first to admit this was a very tricky job because although Gerald Gardner is considered by many to be the quote-unquote father of Wicca, not that I consider myself Wiccan, and not that he ever called himself Wiccan either. And though he was certainly a huge catalyst for the modern witchcraft movement, he was a problematic dude, to put it mildly. And I address a lot of those problems in my foreword to this reprint of his book. 
He was a wealthy white dude who benefited directly from English colonization. He was against government handouts, which is pretty rich coming from a wealthy dude who wouldn't have needed those handouts in the first place. And though he was very feminist and forward-thinking by the standards of his own time, he certainly had extremely old-fashioned notions about feminine attractiveness and about gender essentialism that today certainly ruffle my feathers. But it is also important to realize that he and his cohort were radical, free-thinking, visionary people. These were people who, in their minds, were trying to revive this old religion that honored feminine magic. And this was happening in the 40s and 50s of England. They believed in honoring the divine feminine as equal to the divine masculine. They had high priestesses being in charge of their covens. They believed in sexuality and sensuality and the body overall as being divine and free of shame. They believed in the sacredness of nature. And they believed, as Gardner writes in his book, The Meaning of Witchcraft, quote, the witch belonged essentially to the people, unquote. Gardner himself even participated in a large magical ritual to help fight the Nazis. You can read all about this. The ritual is sometimes referred to as Operation Cone of Power, and I write about it in my book, Waking the Witch, and plenty of other people have written about it too if you want to give it a quick Google to learn more about that. It's a good one. And so I find a lot of inspiration in studying the history of the modern witchcraft movement, because witchcraft may be trendy in some circles now in the 21st century, but when the founders of this movement were getting going in the middle of the 20th century, let me tell you, it was brave and weird and revolutionary. And that's why I am so incredibly grateful to the historians and the curators and the archivists today who are working so hard to preserve and celebrate the history of the modern witchcraft movement and the many pioneers who have been part of leading it. Thanks to their work, our elders in the modern witchcraft movement, yes, with all of their imperfections, can be remembered and known and learned from, and we can draw strength from their examples even as we evolve our own perspectives and methodologies and approaches to what it means to be a witch now, to be a person of power who subverts the status quo. And this is why I have such respect and gratitude for today's guest, 
Stephen Intermill, who is the director of the preeminent American Witchcraft Museum, which is called the Buckland Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. In our conversation, Stephen walks us through not only the history of the museum, but also a mini history of modern American witchcraft as well. And I cannot wait for you to hear it. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Trevor writes, I have shared space with you virtually this year a couple of times, and I do so appreciate your energy. I am making a small journey from a cave in New England to New York City this fall for a little vacation. I have a loved one who feels really called to visit, and I want to support that dream. What I'd like to ask for some support with is feeling grounded and connected to my magic as I experience a totally different brand of energy. Do you have any suggestions about places I should visit or things I should do to tap into this behemoth and try to embrace the flow? Hi, Trevor. I'm so glad that you've been able to make some magic with me online, and I'm so excited that you're going to get to visit my magical city, NYC. And you know, I get asked this question a lot, so much so that I think I eventually need to make a little New York City guide for witches, so note to self. But until I get around to that, let me give you a couple of highlights. Now, certainly there are some great witch shops that you can hit up if you're looking for books and tools, and some of them even have classes and workshops and occasional community rituals. So you can hit up Enchantments in the East Village or Catland Books in the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn. If you're looking for more green witch style magic, then you can get all kinds of herbs and tinctures and the like at Flower Power in the East Village or Sacred Vibes Apothecary in Ditmas Park, Brooklyn. Both of them are absolutely wonderful. And you can actually hear an interview with Karen Rose, the proprietor of Sacred Vibes, on an earlier Witch Wave episode. She is the best. I also like to remind people that magic is found everywhere and nature is everywhere. And New York City has beautiful parks and rivers and waterfalls and gardens and all kinds of places that you can commune with that green energy if you feel called to. But I'm going to be really honest. For me... The most magical experiences that I've had in New York City, and I've lived here a long time now, are actually at museums and public spaces and public parks. I always make a pilgrimage to one of my favorite places on earth, which is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there you can visit my favorite sculpture there, which is of Diana, the Roman goddess of the moon in the American wing. And I've done a lot of magic with her over the years. 
In the Greek and Roman wing of the Metropolitan Museum, you can also seek out plenty of sculptures and artifacts and objects of Artemis and Hecate and so many other deities that I've mentioned on the podcast. But maybe you have a connection to certain deities from other regions and you will most likely find them too as part of some sculpture or artifact or painting representing those deities in other parts of the museum. You can search for them beforehand online. They have a nice search engine which will help you navigate the museum because it is big. But I also love to just let myself float around and feel called to certain pieces and paintings. And it's almost like going on a kind of a vision quest, if you will, letting the art call to me and following, as I often say, the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs, following these clues, these images, these snippets of writing and stories that seem to find who they need to find at the right time. And while you're up at the Met, if you want to make a whole day out of it, you can also visit the Obelisk in Central Park, which is super magical, and the history of it is incredible. It also connects on a straight line down the city to two other obelisks, though that would be a very, very long walk taking you throughout the entire city if you wanted to visit all three. But obelisks are really powerful, wonderful things to spend time with. Grand Central Station is a gorgeous sort of temple to New York City with Mercury, the god of messages and magic and commerce, greeting you outside above the entrance. And my friend Mitch Horowitz taught me to always say, Hail Mercury, whenever I pass by, and so I do. And of course, inside is the famous painted ceiling of constellations and secret symbols that will just take your breath away. And not far from Grand Central Station in Midtown, there is also a museum called the Morgan Library, which has all kinds of wonderful exhibitions all the time. But the old wing is filled with images of gods and goddesses on the ceiling and walls, and it is absolutely exquisite. If you can make it out to the Brooklyn Museum, I also always recommend a visit to Judy Chicago's dinner party installation of the 1970s, which is essentially her giant shrine to the divine feminine with place settings for goddesses and historical feminist figures. And finally, if you're up for a day trip just outside the city, you can take the train or rent a car. Then the most magical outdoor space I know of is Untermeyer Gardens in Yonkers, which has a Persian-style enclosed garden, a temple of love, and a gorgeous relief of Artemis herself over the garden's gateway entrance. There are so many other places that I could mention, but I think that's a pretty good start. And here's hoping that you have the most bewitching visit to this glorious metropolis. Now, on to my guest. Stephen Intermill is the director of the Buckland Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cleveland, Ohio. 
The Buckland Collection includes artifacts from such witch pioneers as Raymond Buckland, Gerald Gardner, Lady Rowan, Alistair Crowley, Sybil Leake, Anton LaVey, Israel Regardi, Scott Cunningham, and many, many, many other leaders of the pagan community. Featuring artifacts from the original collection, the museum's mission is to display the tools and imagery of witchcraft and magic while celebrating the First Amendment and the power of outsider art. Stephen got his passion for sharing interesting artifacts from his previous position as the curator of a Christmas story house and museum, and his interest in the arcane truly grew while performing with the Outre Synthesizer Act Telecult Powers. Stephen joined me from his office in Cleveland via Zoom. Stephen Intermill, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here, although I am awash in guilt and regret because I have known you for a number of years now, but I have still not been able to come visit your museum in person. I'm hoping that I'll be able to correct that soon. There was a pandemic in my defense, so I have invited you here kind of selfishly, because I just want to hear much more about your incredible museum. Well, I am very glad to be here. And, you know, the thing is, is people often tell me, yeah, I haven't been there. This is the first time I've been here. What's the matter? And I just think that, you know, what we do here, it's a very strange experiment. And every day we're kind of refining how we do it, how we present it. So when you get here, it's probably going to be the best time that you could possibly arrive you know i feel that like deep in my heart that it's uh this is a real growing experience for me so let's start with basics you are the would you call yourself the director of the buckland museum of witchcraft and magic director as well as pretty much everything else (laughs) you know it's a small operation Mm -hmm. i have a very small staff which is essentially my assistant cara And then my uh, wonderful wife, Jillian, she uh, comes and plays along once or twice a week. I also have a partner in the museum, Tony, and she lives a couple hours away. She's not always here, but she's definitely always here in spirit. So, Got it. Got it. So for those who, like me, have yet to have the privilege of visiting your museum in person, how do you describe this museum to folks? It's a museum of witchcraft and magic. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's really all it is. It is a museum of uh, artifacts that was started by uh, Raymond Buckland, who came to the U.S. in the 60s, and he had a hero in Gerald Gardner. Gerald Gardner had a witchcraft museum. Mm-hmm. Ray had a witchcraft museum. Mm-hmm. And the witchcraft museum that Gerald Gardner started I'm familiar with because we had the director of that museum, Simon Costin, on the show last season, another place that I have yet to visit and I'm dying to go to. So I'd love to hear the history of, first of all, 
Raymond Buckland and how he and Gerald Gardner even crossed paths or how much they even knew each other and then how that evolved into Ray eventually starting this museum. Can you kind of take us on a history lesson? Yeah. So this is how we start our tour of the museum. Our founder, Ray, came to the U.S. in the early 60s. He comes from London. He settles in Long Island. He starts working. He does a lot of things. He's a copywriter, so he's learning how to write while he's uh, making a little money to do it, which, let's face it, if you want to be a professional writer, this is a great way to start, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something of a spiritual nature lacking. He was raised in some folk magic traditions from his family. He also had a spiritualist in his family, his Mm. uncle George. And he, uh, well, gets his first Ouija board at a young age. So he's a seeker, right? Mm -hmm. And while he's seeking, he discovers Margaret Murray and Gerald Gardner. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very intrigued by Gerald Gardner. For the first time, a witch tells the witch's side of the story, right? Mm -hmm. Before it was the Vatican and fairy tales. And in the back of one of Gardner's books is an address, and he writes him a letter. And it just kind of unfolds from there. Gardner sees a potential spokesperson for witchcraft. He invites Ray to initiation, which Ray does in Perth, Scotland. He takes on the craft name of Robat. He copies the sacred text, the Book of Shadows. He travels back to America and initiates his wife, Rosemary. Mm. Honey, we're witches now. Rosemary <laughs> Buckland becomes Lady Rowan, first high priestess USA. They realize that they need more training, so they travel to the Isle of Man, to Gerald Gardner's Witchcraft Museum, which had just been inherited by Monique Wilson, Lady mm-hmm. Olwyn, Ray's initiator. That inspires this collection here today. Ah, beautifully done. I'm sure you've gone through that many, many times, but I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into some of that. You talk about Raymond Buckland as a seeker, and you say that he was attracted to the books of Margaret Murray. I know she's become a bit of a controversial figure, and for those listening who who don't know who she is, she was a scholar. She wrote a couple books and kind of posited or at least popularized this theory that there was what she called a witch cult of Western Which cult Europe. of Western Europe, yeah. Yep. And, you know, this idea that there was this, like, unbroken lineage of real witches who were, instead of worshiping the devil as the church, you know, accused them of, that, in fact, they were worshiping a horned god or some kind of a masculine, feral, wild deity. But You know, she also kind of popularized this notion, those who, quote unquote, confessed during the witch hunts were actually often telling the truth. That a lot of the wild tales and rituals that they were talking about were indeed true and should be taken at face value. Of course, that's highly debatable. We know that when people are tortured, they will confess to pretty much anything. And there's not a ton of archaeological evidence that proves her theories to be true. And sorry, Stephen, I'm going on my own soapbox now. That doesn't mean that people haven't always been magical or had some kind of relationship with the moon and the seasons that was ritualized or done spells like that people have done throughout time throughout the world. But this notion that there was this like one witch cult, a lot of people debate about that. So just for some extra context. And then Gerald Gardner, of course, is considered the father of Wicca. So you're saying, Stephen, that 
Raymond Buckland. He was enchanted by these ideas, and he and Gerald Gardner start corresponding. Is that right? Yes, by post. I do want to point out that these ideas are articles of faith, okay? Mm. And if you think about this, it's no stranger than any other uh, belief system that anyone out there has. Was there a historical Jesus? I highly doubt it. Was there a historical anyone? Highly doubt it. Was there a historical Hercules? Probably not. So these are tenets of people's faith right here. Mm-hmm. Or if there were real people, then there may have been lots of mythology that then grew up around if there was a real Jesus or there was a real Hercules, then a lot Probably of more myth than fact. That is certainly one theory of this all. And I am certainly not here to debunk the value of modern witchcraft as a modern witch myself. So you are absolutely preaching to the choir there. Do we have the letters that they were writing back and forth? Do we have evidence of what they were talking about? Yeah, they're all in our archives. <gasps> and what kind of things would they discuss? Pretty practical things because it's witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, is everybody wants great revelations in the craft in these letters. But these are what day you get the train to go to the place so you could go to the place so you can meet the person. <laughs> the majority of the letters in the collection really don't explore the mysteries at all. They explore practicalities. I sold my car so I could pay my rent. Mm. Not a lot of deep detail into the mysteries. But what you see in them is deep friendships and respect. Yes, yes. And so there's enough there, clearly, where Gerald sees in Raymond Buckland like a potential protege. Do you think that's a fair classification? Yes, very much so. So how does Raymond, if he hasn't met Gerald... Yet at this point, how does he then kind of learn about, you know, the religion that eventually comes to be called Wicca? Is he reading Gerald's books? How does this happen? He's reading books, which let's face it. I mean, that's the main course of action for any burgeoning witch, I would hope. Yes. Is start reading books on the subject. He also starts a correspondence with Gardner's high priestess, Monique Wilson. And this is a very close bond that they developed, the two of them. Monique, Lady Olwyn, and she really takes Ray under her wing. She's the one that invites him to the Isle of Man. So he goes to the Isle of Man. He becomes trained more in Wicca. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And that's where he's first exposed to this notion of a witchcraft museum because Gerald Gardner has started this museum, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, on the Isle of Man. At this point, what is that museum like? Well, it's in a dilapidated mill on the Isle of Man, which Gerald Gardner had his collection. By that point, Cecil Williamson had taken his half of the collection back to the mainland. Long story there. And then he thinks, you know, this would be a wonderful way to train my group. He starts collecting a few things there and there. Monique gives him a few gifts there. Gerald Gardner's wallet is a uh, favorite one to me. <laughs> and he comes back and he just starts a really humble collection in his basement. He does call it the first museum of witchcraft in the Americas. Mm. Yeah, because it essentially was the first museum of witchcraft in the Americas. 
And it just kind of goes from there. At this point, witchcraft in the U.S. is really having a massive resurgence. Mm -hmm. And Ray gets to be part of the scene. And he starts collecting things from his contemporaries. Can you talk about the witchcraft scene in America? Because I think a lot of folks don't realize that it kind of is imported, or I should say it's kind of exported from England. It comes to America. And again, this is via mostly books, correct? Yeah, it's before the internet. And you have to think that at this time, a lot of people are still taking freighters across the ocean. Mm -hmm. So when Ray first moved to America, came here by boat. The transmission of ideas were a bit slower back then. Mm-hmm. And books were really the main way. And then there was an explosion of media in the 60s. You know, I get it here, especially this month. It's uh, people want to talk to us. I'm like, hey, I kind of feel Beltane's a much more witchy holiday. But <laughs> more more so than Samhain and Halloween. Yeah. yeah. You know, you explain that to the news media, right? <laughs> But here they have some sensational people showing up, like Sybil Leak. I'm so glad you brought up her name because I have a lot of questions about her. But keep going. Keep going. Okay. I, I might be able to answer some. I might not. But uh, Sybil Leak, she's quite the popularizer of witchcraft. She starts writing things. Then you have people like Louise Hubner over on the West Coast. And I would call this America's first witch wave. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then my understanding is that those books kind of are in the bloodstream of the American spiritual underground. Books on spellcrafting, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. books on astrology. Mm -hmm. And then those books go on to influence, my understanding is, some of the feminist witches like your... Z Budapests and your Starhawks and that wave of kind of feminist witchcraft, which I think to some degree, even though it's very problematic and often still stuck in a gender essentialist kind of binary, all of this stuff at times, a lot of those women are still like highly influential today. So are there other names that you think need to be highlighted as American witches who deserve more credit for popularizing witchcraft here in the States? Yeah, and there's countless. You know, that's the thing is we cover some people. Why don't we cover these people? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they're witches, so (laughs) witches tend to hide in the shadows. But probably my favorite witch to talk about outside of the normal circle of witches would be somebody named Leo Martello. Mm. And Leo Martello, to me, is like as much of a legend of the craft as anybody else. Early witch, early gay rights activist, hugely influential on the magical scene at the time. Part of the magical child scene, which I'm sure you probably visited the magical child as a young person. I did not. And I am so regretful about it. I forget. So for those listening, the magical child was a legendary witchcraft shop here in New York City. I believe it was on 19th Street. I think Mm -hmm. that's right. So just above Union Square area. And 35 West 19th Street. All right. We have a bag for it right over here. Would that have been in the 80s? Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Yep. I must have like just missed it. Yeah. But I've heard tales and stories. And actually, I'm going to leave us on that cliffhanger because we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
This episode of The Witch Wave is sponsored by the Many Moons Lunar Planner. Every witch's favorite spiritual guide and the original lunar planner is now available to pre-order. Infuse your everyday life with ritual, intention, creative coaching, and magic alongside practical ideas and encouragements to live your most authentic life. Many Moons has every single astrological transit alongside every single moon phase and moon sign for 2023. There are monthly forecasts and overviews as well as dozens of tarot spreads, and every new and full moon comes with a thorough, exciting, inspirational piece to help you collaborate with the lunation written by astrologers, herbalists, witches, healers, mystics, and artists such as yours truly and other witchwave luminaries like Juliet Diaz, Rachel True, Gabby Herstick, and Robin Rose Bennett. Get supported, grounded, and resourced for our 2023 chariot year. The Many Moons 2023 guide keeps the mundane magical so you can live your most magical life. Order yours now at moon-studio.co. That's moon-studio.co or by clicking the link in the show notes. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books has recently published The Magic of the Sword of Moses, a practical guide to its spells, amulets, and ritual by Harold Roth. I am so excited about this book. You know I've been getting deeper into my Jewitchery, and this is a book to really help me do it. The Magic of the Sword of Moses is a practical guide to the famed medieval book of pre-Kabbalistic Jewish magic, freshly interpreted and revealed for the first time with instructions on how to use the spells. In it, Roth refers to the original manuscript, but contextualizes it through its sources, development, and influence to make it more accessible to the modern reader. This work was first translated by Moses Gaster in 1896, but he removed many of the spells, making the text unusable for magic in a lot of ways. The Magic of the Sword of Moses is the first book to show in detail exactly how a magician or a witch, can use the sword, how to do the purification ritual, adjure the angels, and pronounce and use the divine names for each spell. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this book. Again, this is The Magic of the Sword of Moses by Harold Roth, out from Wiser Books. And now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now look, I'm an air sign with anxiety, so I confess I'm sometimes stuck in my head and focused on stress and problems more than I'd like. But in addition to witchcraft, I have found therapy to be incredibly supportive because it helps me focus on solutions when I'm faced with a problem rather than just staying stuck in this feedback loop of focusing on what's hard. 
I've been in therapy myself for years, and talking to a therapist really helps me shift from a mindset of resisting what is into a mode of acceptance and problem solving, which has been such a relief. And that's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp exists. BetterHelp is an online platform for therapy, which means that it's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And that also means that more people can benefit from talking to a therapist. Being in therapy myself over the years has helped me manage my anxiety and PTSD because it provides me with an impartial, caring person whose sole job is to offer support with emotional challenges. Therapy has also helped me accomplish my goals, whether big or small. Quitting my corporate day job a few years back and writing my book, Waking the Witch, and starting this very podcast were all really exciting and also extremely nerve-wracking, and I truly don't think that I would be as fully actualized as a person doing what I love now without having had that help. And I want that for everyone. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because you can do it virtually. To get started and matched with a therapist who you click with, you just need to fill out a brief survey and remember that you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. Be well with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Intermill. So Stephen, we're talking about some of the, you know, we'll call them like glittering stars in the constellation of American witchcraft. And you brought up someone named... Was it Leo? Can you say it again? Leo Martello. Leo Martello. Is he still with us? No, he passed about 20 years ago. Mm. But the first book I ever read on witchcraft was a book by him called Witchcraft, the Old Religion, which somehow my high school had, which every (laughs) time I think about that, because I live pretty much in farm country. Now it's just suburban hell. (laughs) But there's no rational reason for this book to be in my high school library. Mm. But there it was. And I remember checking it out multiple times. Just fascinating, fascinating person. And, you know, the first COVID summer, I was gifted a collection of his um, artifacts as well as a collection of just writings by him. And it really sparked a whole new thing. And we recently were donated by a writer, Kat Cole, out on the West Coast, she came across 30 issues of his newsletter, the WICA newsletter. And it's really incredible because you're reading a time capsule at the time, a few years, early 70s. It's just a couple pages, each one. And you go through it and you really see not just like what books are being published and who's liking what, but also the gossip at the time mm-hmm. and who and that. And I really uh, enjoyed the fact that he really did not like our founder in the first few issues. And, you know. Raymond Buckland. Is that right? Yeah. My two favorite witches are not getting along. But by the 30th (laughs) issue, they're thick as thieves. 
Huh? You know, I was just going through these issues with bated breath, right? Like, mm. is it going to turn? Is it going to change? Because we had other Leo things in the collection. So I knew that they must have mended at some point. Oh. There it was in black and white. So. Oh, that's lovely. You said that Leo was an advocate for queer witchcraft. Is that kind Oh, yeah, of... very much. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, he didn't see in the Christian church any place for gay people. Mm-hmm. And he saw it in the pagan religions, mm-hmm. very much so. Did he identify as queer? Oh, yeah. He's do newspaper columns as the gay witch. <sighs> nice. And he was a very no-nonsense person whatsoever. And he just didn't really see a room for queerness in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he definitely saw it in neo-pagan communities. Mm, he sounds amazing. Okay, so... Let's get back to Raymond Buckland. And we certainly should shout out, I imagine many listeners will be familiar with his quote-unquote big blue book, Raymond Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, which is kind of like Witchcraft 101 for at least those of us who like grew up in the 90s. I think it's still quite popular, would you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. People come in all the time and tell me about how this book's changed their lives. It's really cool. Probably my least favorite guest bragged about shoplifting it when she was 15. Mm. And my favorite came in an hour later telling me about it being the foundational text for a high school coven (gasps) that uh, she found at a lunch table sitting by herself and somebody sat next to her with it. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's getting really dusty in here. (laughs) So the book's touched a lot of lives in a lot of different ways. And it's just really wonderful to... uh, see its influence on people. Yeah. And of course, he wrote many, many other books and was just arguably one of the most influential American witches, certainly. And now I would say probably international witches in in the history of modern witchcraft. So he starts this collection, you said, on Long Island. And then my understanding is this collection of artifacts kind of jumps around all over Mm -hmm. the place. So I'd love to hear how the hell you became its steward. Yeah, of course. So Ray had it in Long Island, and then he moved up to New Hampshire, and then he moved it down to Virginia, and he put it in storage for a while. He sold it around turn of the century, which sounds so dramatic to people that were around before <laughs> 2000, and uh, he sold it to some people in New Orleans. And some things happened there that I just want to kind of gloss over. <laughs> and then uh, Politics. A true hero of the craft. Uh, Velvet Wreath, Reverend Wreath, she essentially takes the collection and it's under her care down in New Orleans. And then at some point, she's like, I can't really take care of this. I have to go uh, tell my own affairs. And my partner in the museum, a woman named Tony Rotunda, she's Ray's last acting high priestess of his last coven. She's like, well, if you need it, I'll drive down there and I'll pick it up for you, Ray. So she goes down there and she puts it in a U-Haul and she brings it up to Columbus. And this isn't really my story to tell, I guess, but Ray did say to her, well, you know, you obviously care for this. This is collection is yours. And Tony's response is, oh, I'm really, really a busy person, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a big responsibility. So meanwhile, I'm working up here in Cleveland. And I work for a local tourist place, a Christmas story house, which... Let's not gloss over that. Stephen, you are working for 
the house that the exteriors of the famous film the christmas some scene. interiors okay some interiors excuse moi yeah, and and this is a house filled with like props and artifacts from this like you know iconic christmas movie and you are working there yeah and then what happens so you know like one day i'm up at 5 a.m for the local news to be there <laughs> i'm like around myself a bit ragged and i'm thinking ah you know i'm gonna run myself ragged i think i should do it for myself mm. so somewhere out of the mists this thought comes in my head and says you should email ray buckland see whatever happened with collection you have a magical audience so i should probably kind of tell the other subplot so back in 2010 i was living in new york i was playing in a very magical occult synthesizer band nice. we were having a great time telecult powers and julian and i we decided to move to new orleans and before we moved to new orleans i did a magical spell to get working in the new orleans tourism industry turns out that I'm very good at selling French bistro furniture online and I wound <laughs> up getting a gig doing that but a lot of the skills that I used you know in that gig I used to get my gig at a Christmas story house so I'm working at a Christmas story house little did I know that when I was down in New Orleans that collection was there uh, you know so it's almost like the spirits were uh bringing like, you together yeah this, He's not ready for it, but, you know, maybe we could help. Mm. So they push it along. So I'm sitting there. I have no idea where this collection is. I read about it in the 90s. So I email Ray, whatever happened to the collection. Can I pause you there? Did you know that Ray was living in Ohio at that point? How would I know that? You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, just I, I don't know. So I email Ray, whatever happened to your collection? And he forwards the email to Tony, who calls me up. She's like, yeah, Ray said that. You were uh, asking about the collection. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what's with it? She's like, it's in a bunch of totes in my attic. Mm. I said, can I see it? She's like, hmm, I don't know. It's just a bunch of weird stuff and totes in my attic. And I guess my response was, I live for weird stuff in totes and attics. And <laughs> yes. a couple of weeks later, I drove down there, saw the collection, wheels start turning. And then driving home, I witnessed a terrible motorcycle accident. And it was very strange because my boss was with me, my friend Josh. And we pull over. We're uh, first people on the scene. Mm. And it gets kind of freaky. You know, those wheels are turning in your head. And Josh was like, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what is it, a hex? I was like, well, you know. He's like, well, think about it. If that collection was cursed in any way, that would be us. I said, all right. He's like, this is the universe. This was saying, hey, do what you want. Be who you want to be. You know, live the life you want to live. Because who knows what happens. Life is too short. And that was pretty much the moment I was like, all right, well, let's run with this and see. And before we go any further, the accident was terrible, but it's my understanding that they weren't life-threatening. Mm -hmm. It wasn't fatal. Good. I just want to connect the dots, Stephen. So you were in New Orleans. You eventually decide to move back to Ohio? No. Okay. You're paying 
22,000 or $2,200 a month for just a uh, terrible apartment. Yeah. You know, someplace like Cleveland seems very reasonable. Right. And are you from Cleveland originally? That's where we landed when I was about 12. Okay. Some of your formative years were in Cleveland. Yeah. Got it. Would you have discovered that witchcraft book you were talking about in Cleveland or did that happen earlier? Yeah, it was in Cleveland. Um, Interesting. That's really interesting to me, too. Okay, so what's the next step? You reach out and you say, I just feel like I'm supposed to help bring this collection back to the public. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Like, hey, let's do it. Tony was like, yeah, (laughs) let's do it. She saw a responsible person that could do it, right? Mm -hmm. Because pretty much what we do here, this is the secret mystery, okay? We have things that people have an interest in. People love witchcraft. They love magic. We show them to them. But not only that, we also tell a story of it, Mm -hmm. okay? And that's what I learned at a Christmas story house. I've just kind of tried to recreate it the best I could here. So let's talk about what's in the collection. And I know this is no replacement for people actually getting to witness it in person. And everybody should go visit you in Cleveland if they're able to. But if you could kind of at least talk us through like some highlights, some favorite objects. Yeah. What are some some interesting artifacts that we would find? So people always ask me, like, what's your favorite piece? But I always think of like disaster, right? Something happens. What's got to go first? And I always think the crescent moon headdress as worn by Lady Rowan, first American Wiccan high priestess, okay? The moment that this headdress gets placed upon her essentially splits the atom, creating the occult explosion in the 1960s. This is the moment where truly like the modern era of witchcraft comes alive. And I know that there's all sorts of arguments one way or another, but the way I frame the story in my head, this is the pivotal moment that really brings on what Throbbing Gristle called the 6660s in the USA. (laughs) This is the moment, you know, this is years before the Church of Satan gets founded and all in the suburbs of New York City, right? Mm. So... To me, that is truly one of the absolute most important pieces of occult adornments of all time. When you think about disaster, you're saying if there was a fire or a flood, that's the item you would rescue. Goddess forbid, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then next to it is a raised horned helmet. And he gives instructions on how to make your own in Big Blue, which is the nickname for Ray's book. Okay. Mm-hmm. You may have covered that. But this horned helmet is something they crafted because they needed to. You needed something to represent the horned god of the hunt. And when you break it down to its parts, it's essentially simple household items. But together, it creates something to represent the horned god. And to me, the idea that it's so simply exploring the craft element of witchcraft, the idea of putting your heart into your magical tools, it's not here. It should be in the Smithsonian. Mm. We have Ray's antique mandrake group, and there's a photo of him holding it, and he knows exactly what he has in his hands, and his eyes are aflame with just pure, just like joy, but he looks like a witch, and that makes me so happy, and this, because of its age, it's an antique, Mm. knowing that it was used by the local healer, the person that you go see 
when there's a problem and you don't want to go see that weird barber with the leeches, right? right. You go yeah. see the healer, the one that knows the herbs and the roots and the right cycle, the moon, when to cut them. That's very important to me. Sybil Leaks Crystal Ball, I love. I tell a story a lot. I tell it to almost everyone that comes in. But at the opening, my parents are there and they're just confused. There's people here. This makes no sense. My mother sees Sybil Leaks Crystal Ball. I can see just like all of it coming to focus for to Sybil Leak. I remember her. Mm-hmm. She was always on television back in the 60s. Yeah. Well, this is the kind of thing you have here, Stephen. <laughs> you know? Yes. Makes it something that your parents can frame in their head. Yes. It's uh, extraordinarily important. We have some Crowley pieces that are uh, of note and interest. We have a lot of beautiful talismans. We do a a lot of rotating exhibits. We work with a curator in New York often named uh, Stephen Romano. I love Stephen. I've worked with him before too. His collection is really wonderful and he's always very, very generous about loaning things out. Mm -hmm. He's very cavalier about it, which I'm always very grateful for. Currently, we have his Darcilio Lima exhibit. I love Darcilio Lima's work. I got to show a piece of his and... Language of the Birds, Occult and Art, the show that I curated. And Stephen loaned a lot of um, items and, and paintings and drawings to that show. And I love his work. Oh, I'd love to see that show, Stephen. When is it up until? I'm hoping till about mid-November. Okay. We've extended it to Halloween, but I'm like, I'm having a lot of joy sharing this. Yeah. So it's paired with Luciana Lupe Vasconcelos, mm. other Brazilian artist, and her work is, it's sublime. And I know that you've also done exhibitions with our mutual, wonderful occult artist friend, Jesse Bransford, who's oh, yeah. been on the show. Shannon well, Taggart has done an event with you, the great spiritualist photographer, who's a friend of mine who's been on the show. You do a lot to also elevate contemporary magical artwork and put it in conversation with these historical artifacts. And I love that. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) Having something like this, you have the opportunity to share magical art with the world. So I try to leap at the opportunity any chance I can. Jesse's Magic Circle is a huge centerpiece of the uh, collection. It's one of the first things that you see when you walk in. They cover... The magic circle very early in the tour, which I think is very mature. <laughs> or myself, I don't know. I just forget, right? And then I wait till people ask. And then I tell the story about Jesse coming and painting it. Mm. Carl always likes to point out it's our museum safe space. This is the place you want to be. You get vibed out by anything. This is the place. I should probably get better at mentioning that to my guests. <laughs> I love that. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Good Sigil is a line of super stylish, powerful, talismanic jewelry. And I'm going to be honest, I really want some of it. As you know, historically, jewelry has been imbued with the powers of protection, luck, commitment, and more. And wearing jewelry is a form of magical intention. Good Sigil is tarot and astrology-inspired jewelry handcrafted with intention in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's made from silver, which is the metal of the moon, and is considered both a shield 
and a mirror. So each tarot pendant from Good Sigil is a tiny shield, reflecting and projecting your chosen tarot archetype. I've got my eye on their star tarot necklace since that's such a personal card for me, although I'm also tempted by their high priestess necklace, so I gotta think about it. But anyway, you can sign up for the Good Sigil newsletter at www.goodsigil.com for 10% off your first order, as well as access to exclusive discounts and offerings, including astrologically elected talismans. Find Good Sigil on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and Facebook at goodsigil.com. And that's spelled G-O-O-D-S as in sorcery, I-G-I-L. I want to tell you about a new witchy queer-led podcast called Psyche Magic, where psychotherapist Jordan Hale interviews artists of all stripes about working with the subconscious via dreams, tarot, and the spirit realm. These freeform, playful conversations are about integrating the magic of symbol into both waking and dreaming life, deepening a sense of interconnection, creativity, and self-knowledge. Jordan's velvety voice and nurturing energy are perfect for relaxing and sending you off for a restful and sometimes eventful night's sleep. If you're like me, you're a practical witch who wants to put those seven or eight, or dare I say nine, hours of sleep to good use, and the Psyche Magic podcast will help you learn to work mindfully with your dream material and cultivate sustainable practices around reveling in your inner world. So grab your nearest dream journal and check out this dreamy podcast. You can visit their website at psychemagicpodcast.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E magicpodcast.com. Or by searching Psyche Magic wherever you get your podcasts. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful Witch Wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Intermill. So, Stephen, you brought up a name that your parents were very impressed by. It's a name that keeps coming up for me, too, and that is the name Sybil Leak. This is a person who I'm so curious about because she was super famous in her heyday, you know, public witch, 
She appeared on talk shows and game shows. She wrote, I think, like 60 books about astrology and witchcraft. Perhaps her most well-known book is an autobiography called Diary of a Witch, which I'm actually reading now, and it is such a hoot. And a lot of people don't know her name anymore. Can you talk a little bit about her and maybe if she knew Ray or just how she was in the scene of American witchcraft? So probably like my favorite thing about Sybil is a uh, conversation that I had with Ray about her. Because I said, Ray, I've been listening to this reel-to-reel interview, and it's you on a TV show, the Alan Burke TV show in Long Island. And there's this whole thing about Sybil Leak, famous witch astrologer, and you pop up and you start arguing with her. What's going on? He's like, well, we knew each other. We met each other by then. They reach out to me and they say, do you want to be on this radio program? was Sybil. And I said, well, that sounds fantastic. And I show up and the producer pulls me to the side. And he's like, well, what kind of fun is this? Two witches being friends? So, <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, it's like a Maury Povich moment almost. <laughs> oh my goodness. It became a thing where Ray uh, confronts her about witchcraft. And I said, how was this? He's like, well, we were laughing about it backstage in the green room. So it must not have been that bad. <gasps> so it was like a fake feud? Yeah, I find it funny because that's the modern world that, you know, the old school witches are thrown into. But I also think it's, you know, sad because I would have loved a recorded conversation between the two of them. A genuine one. Yeah. Yeah. But that's uh, and that's what we have. You know, ratings get in the way of truth. Yeah. So. Yeah. I see a lot of similarities between them because she was also originally from England and then came over. And my understanding is, you know, she was considered kind of like threatening and annoying to her neighbors. She owned an antique shop yeah. and, you know, got into some kind of like controversy. And I think they didn't like all the attention and press she was getting in her community. And so she eventually just like leaves and comes to America. And, you know, certainly, you know, Ray being born in England and then coming to the U.S. Like I would imagine they would have a lot in common. Yeah, and it's my understanding that they did. But she comes to the States and really goes for it. I think it's really cool when people could live the American dream, right? And a lot of times people forget, especially this day and age, part of the American dream would be come to America and spread witchcraft. <laughs> exactly. Well, so much of you know this country was allegedly founded on religious freedom and... I mean, the current powers that be, you know, I think sometimes they talk that talk, but don't necessarily walk that walk. And I don't have a problem with Christianity in general. I think it's a lovely path alongside, you know, thousands of other lovely paths. Um, yeah. But the Christian nationalism that is, mm -hmm. you know, taking over and, and on the rise and it seems so antithetical to what this country was founded on, which is this dream that you can like you know, believe anything you want. There's a great book by Mitch Horowitz called Occult America, which basically yeah. talks about the founding of America and all of these kind of weird religious, maybe weird is not the right word, but I say that. Maybe W-Y-R-D weird. <laughs> exactly. I say that with like such love and affection, like all of the offshoots, such as like spiritualism and all of these different 
spiritual alternatives that are able to flourish here in the States. And I think what you're doing, Stephen, and what the museum is doing is such an important part of preserving and celebrating and continuing that legacy of like America being a safe space or it should be a safe space, a magic circle for the weird, you know? That's what we're trying to do. And I get such a diverse group of people that wander in through my doors. And it's always such a joy to be able to share witchcraft with every single person. Because let's face it, the majority of people that come in here are really, really cool people. Other people may not think so, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Probably attracts more outsiders and insiders. But who are the people that have the interesting ideas? Who did you want to sit with and lunch, right? Yeah. The interesting people, the people with, <laughs> with kind of a different worldview. So having a place like that, and I mean, I see them and I see, I see parents come in with their strange kid, right? I can see their body language change from, you know, the beginning of the tour where I'm shouting at them for 10 minutes about the history of the museum, right? Yeah. It's all stuff Car and I think so important for people here, but you know, and then I see them walk around and walk through and I get to see them just loosen up. Yeah. And by the end, they want to take a picture in the magic circle. It's like a gift. Yeah, it is. So talking about gifts, I think it's so special that you got to know Ray a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him and how he felt about the museum being resurrected? Yeah, he was, you could tell he was very, very happy behind me right here. I don't know if you could see it, but it's the last public photo of Ray taken. And it was at our opening. Uh, you could see he was so proud to see his collection back on display. Getting to know him, I knew him for about six months, oh, maybe a year before that, and then six months after. I feel really blessed to have known him. He's almost like the grandfather that I didn't really know. Mm. And can't bond over and talk to him, hear him tell stories, not just me, but like other people that are in like this museum circle and hearing them tell stories. But I knew him enough where I could hear it in his voice. It's uh, really, really wonderful. So. Yeah. And I understand he crossed over pretty shortly after the museum opened. Is that right? Yeah. About five months after. And my first communication with you was, hey, we asked Ray, but he couldn't make it. Would you like to present at the Occult Humanities Conference? I said, yeah, it sounds great. And then Ray passed between then and when I spoke. I remember Ray had a long tradition of getting lectures back in the 60s and 70s. And I remember thinking that, uh, how am I going to do this? And mm -hmm. before I did, I got to meet a wonderful friend of yours, Susan Aberth, oh, who yeah. knew Ray. And she gave me this massive hug. She told me that I'd do great. And I don't know, everybody said it was cool. So It was awesome. I loved that lecture. And that really makes me happy. It almost feels like Ray was like passing you the baton or the wand, as it were. Yeah, well, giving me a blessing, which, you know, that's the thing is every day I wake up and I count my blessings. The magical community has been very generous to us here because not one person had any idea who I was until this and the amount of openness that people have had with me. You being one of them, Jesse, has been uh, really great. Really appreciate it. 
Well, Stephen, I appreciate you so much. I so appreciate the obvious love and care and stewardship that you're putting into this museum. And you also do it with such a spirit of like joy and, you know, playfulness too. Your museum isn't just this like dour, serious place. There's a lot of that, what I call reverent irreverence to it, which I really love. That was uh, Ray's last piece of advice to me, actually. It was like, Stephen, you really need to take it in a um, a light manner, because otherwise you come across as dour, as some kind of lord of the abyss, and that's not going to make people very comfortable. And I think it's probably something that he figured out while he was doing it, because he was giving tours back in the 60s and 70s. Now, I mean, think about it. Your neighbor's a witch. Could you imagine that? When <laughs> we first opened, we had 300 guests lined on the street. I said, Ray, did you have this reaction when you opened your place? He said, yeah, many people enjoyed it. But shortly after, someone set my car on fire. Oh, no. You know, so like I think about that pretty much every day. But I also think that uh, I just love the fact that through that kind of thing, Ray always still, you know, had an easy sense of humor. Mm-hmm which probably the best advice anybody's ever given me about anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, may you and Jillian and everyone else involved with the museum and the whole museum and all its artifacts, may it be protected, may it be blessed, may you continue to generate that lighthearted joy. And I just can't wait to see you again. I can't wait to visit. Thank you so much, Stephen. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, one last thing. You invited me to be on this the day I met you. You said, I'm going to start a podcast. I want to interview you. And I am so grateful that we waited five years. <laughs> you have a wonderful podcast. Guests come in and I ask them their influences of witchcraft. And I'm always excited when they mention you because I'm like, oh, I actually know her. <laughs> so keep doing what you're doing. Keep spreading the uh, witch waves around the world. Thank you, Stephen. Back at you. And I will see you in person soon. Sounds good. You're always welcome. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Stephen Intermill for sharing his arcane archival passions with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witchwave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars it really truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.